This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. John is always very particular in his use of that word, therefore. Every week we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is titled, Why Does Love Delay? It was preached by Alexander McLaren in the late 1800s. Why does love delay? Why does it feel like God waits to answer our prayers? Why are there times where you feel like you're just waiting on God to show you something, give you something, let you out the door. And that and that waiting sometimes can be a couple of days, a couple of painful hours. That waiting can sometimes be years. Is God delaying? Why does it delay? This is the question in this sermon today. Why did God wait to go to Lazarus? And why does it seem that God will delay in answering those prayers? Alexander McLaren preached this during the late 1800s. And and, and by the way, Joel, I got to say, if mm. I could go back in a time machine to any time, I'm starting to think the late 1800s There's because yeah, you could theoretically just show up in the United Kingdom. If you just go to one place, you could listen to Spurgeon, Mueller, Alexander McLaren, J.C. Ryle, George Matheson, Alexander White, maybe even D.L. Moody and Hudson Taylor if you kind of timed it right. That's kind of the place you want to go to. I'm just throwing that out there as something to think about. <laughs> but he was a man who always wanted to be a minister. That was what... Uh, Alexander McLaren wanted. And he. And we mentioned on this show that uh, way back in the first season that Hudson Taylor pursued, pursued one thing. He really wanted to be a missionary to China. Well, McLaren wanted to be a minister, but he even more so wanted this. I mean, this was something his entire life was bent around. Yeah, uh, he was born in 1826, and he would die in 1910. And I mean, Troy was said he wanted to be a minister, but I feel like a more fitting description is he wanted to preach. Uh, and I feel like more specifically, he liked, he liked to write sermons a lot. He, he, when we look at his life, he strikes me very much as, as almost like a like a novelist. Like he's got the gift of, of writing messages that speak to people. Uh, he was saved sometime between the ages of 11 and 13. He preached his first sermon when he was 17 years old, and he, he journaled about it. He wrote it down in a date. He wrote the location and the subject. It, you know, he was something he was proud of. Almost like, you know, I think of like, a, you know, a businessman that saves the first dollar they earned. That was McLaren with the first sermon that, that he spoke. He would go on to go to a Baptist college. He fell in love with Hebrew and Greek. Uh, the rest of his life, it was said he'd read half an hour of Hebrew and Greek just to stay familiar with it. He just felt like he learned and grew a whole lot from those languages. After he finished his schooling in his early 20s, he would get his first church. And a lot like J.C. Ryle, his first church was a little rough. Uh, we mentioned in an episode about J.C. Ryle that his first church was kind of in the swamp, kind of not with the most spiritual people. This is very much the case that... Alexander McLaren was dealing with. His church was old. It was dying. Um, to give you an idea, just picture in your head, this was a church that had seating for 800 people, but had an attendance of 20. So if you can just imagine getting up in front of an auditorium that could fill 800 
and 20 people are there. That's what that would have felt like. So you definitely felt like you were going to a very small dying church, but he loved it. And for 11 years, he poured his soul into it. He saw it grow. And step by step, this dying church slowly became a healthy spiritual community. And uh, later in life, when he was asked about it, he said that he thanked God for the early days of struggle and obscurity. He felt like it prepared him for what was to come. If you had met McLaren uh, back in back in the day, if you lived during that day and you knew him, uh, he would not strike you as the a, a typical pastor of that era. Most preachers were were typically pretty, especially in this in this time period, very loud and energetic. McLaren was was pretty reclusive. He kept to himself for the most part, uh, and and this is evident in his ministry as well. He you know a, a lot of preachers during this time, you know, you're going around starting orphanages, interceding ministries, you're on a speaking circuit McLaren, he, he would he would just preach at his church week to week and that's why you know i i i kind of see him more as as a person that writes sermons like that that's where you definitely see he's he's gifted he's gifted at at constructing these sermons in the wording he he's not necessarily gifted with the flair of of being a, a public figure and in going around uh but he definitely has his talents in other areas if we build on the idea that Joel has that he's this kind of gifted artist type person or gifted story writer who keeps to himself but brings out these great sermons, you could see that, you know, Alexander McLaren didn't really live a life of suffering. We always bring back this theme with almost all of our pastors, it's true. They have these great moments that are just huge trials, but McLaren doesn't really have any of these moments where life gets incredibly hard and he loses loved ones or anything like that. But if you were to ask him about the job he was doing, he would say that he was not doing a good job. It was said that he did his pastoral care. He really tried to care for his congregants, but he never felt confident. He always felt like he was dropping the ball and not taking care of them the way he should. And even though he was an amazing preacher. After each sermon, he would go home and just spend a few hours in just true despair. And before you think, well, he's kind of being melodramatic, uh, a friend of him once said, you know, why do you think that every time you get up to speak, there's a huge crowd, you know, applauding you. Clearly, people think you're a good uh, preacher. And he answered him, quote, uh, it's a small thing to be judged by people, but I'm being judged for my sermons by God. And so in his mind, these great sermons that were just making a huge impact on people's lives, he was looking at them and then he was comparing them to the love of God and the holiness of God. And almost like a tortured artist, he never felt like he was doing a good enough job. And that was kind of the area where he suffered, where he felt like I can never, I no matter how good I preach, I'm just not good enough to make God look as good as he truly is. But he would continue to do it. He still got up. And when he explained why, he said, even though I'm imperfect, I'm not good enough to do the job that I've been given to do. I believe in the message that I'm preaching. And so I'm going to continue to do it until God has told me to stop. His sermons would go on to be published weekly, and some said they were the most read sermons in all the world at the time. Uh, he moved to Manchester after his 11 years at the smaller church, and there he would become quite famous, would have the congregation of 1500, and it's always important to remember this is 1500 before air conditioning, before heaters, before cars. It's not as easy to get 1500 back in those days like it you know, could now, not that that's a small accomplishment now either. As he got older, he did become the president of an organization, so he did stretch himself a little bit. He would go and do a speaking tour in New Zealand and Australia in 1903, his retirement year. So again, I don't want to give you the impression that he never left home, but by and large, McLaren would be like a classic case of an introvert more so than a uh, 
than a uh, than an out you know outward going loud part of the crowd person. McLaren would uh, go on to retire, but he he would never stop writing sermons even after retiring. Again, like I feel like that's like that was that was his talent. That's what God gave him. It was his writing and and conveying the word of God to people, uh, and he did that onto the day he died. This this sermon that we're looking at here today, you know, it's titled "Why Did Love Delay," and it's it's all about questioning why God does something the way He chooses to do it. The thing is, God doesn't do things the human way. He, he doesn't answer to us in our time. He answers it in his time. And you can kind of see that in, in Alexander McLaren's life as well. McLaren wanted so bad to be used by God. He wanted so bad for the sermons he wrote to glorify God. And that was his prayer throughout his life. And, uh, you know, sadly, he didn't feel like his sermons were living up to that standard. But you know, looking back on it now and seeing the millions of people that these sermons have have touched and and work and how God has worked through them over the years, um, we can see. I mean, God did answer McLaren's prayer, just you know, in, in a different time. Here we are, over a hundred years later, and 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 reading his sermon and looking back on it, and hopefully, uh, you know, it's still speaking to people the way McLaren prayed that it would do. Men in that day would have seen a, a shy but intelligent guy who was nervous, but God saw a powerful speaker. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard therefore that he was sick, he waited two days in the same place where he was, John 11, 5 and 6. We learn from a later verse in this chapter that Lazarus had been dead four days when Christ reached Bethany. The distance from that village to the probable place of Christ's abode when he received the message was about a day's journey. If, therefore, to the two days on which he waited still, and after the receipt of the news, we add the day which the messengers took to reach him and the day which he took in traveling, we get the four days which Lazarus had spent in his grave. Consequently, the probability is that when our Lord had the message, the man was dead. Christ did not remain still in order to work a greater miracle by raising Lazarus from the dead than he would have done by healing. But he stayed, strange as it would appear, for reasons closely connected with the highest well-being of the beloved three and because he loved them. John is always very particular in his use of that word, therefore. And he points out many a subtle and beautiful connection of cause and effect by his employment of it. I do not know that any of them are more significant and more full of illumination with regard to the ways of divine providence than the instance before us. How these two sisters must have looked down the rocky road that led up from Jericho during those four weary days 
to see if there were any sign of his coming. How strange it must have appeared to the disciples themselves that he made no sign of movement despite the message. Perhaps John's scrupulous carefulness in pointing out that his love was Christ's reason for his inactivity may reflect a remembrance of the doubts that had crept over the minds of himself and his brethren during these two days of strange dormancy. The evangelist will have us learn a lesson which reaches far beyond the instance in hand and casts light on many dark places. First, Christ's delays are the delays of love. We have, all of us, I suppose, had experience of desires for the removal of bitterness or sorrows or for the fulfillment of expectations and wishes which we believed on the best evidence that we could find to be in accordance with His will and which we have been able to make prayers out of in true faith and submission, which prayers had to be offered over and over and over again and no answer has come. It is part of the method of providence that the lifting away of the burden and the coming of the desires should be a hope deferred. And instead of stumbling at the mystery or feeling as if it made a great demand upon our faith, would it not be wiser for us to lay hold of that little word of the apostles here and to see in it a small window that opens out onto a boundless prospect and a glimpse into the very heart of the divine motives of his dealings with us? If we could once get that conviction into our hearts, how quietly we should go about our work. What a beautiful and brave patience there would be in us if we habitually felt that the only reason which actuates God's providence in its choice of times of fulfilling our desires and lifting away our bitterness is our good Nothing but the purest and simplest love, transparent and without a fold in it, sways him in all that he does. Why should it be so difficult for us to believe this? If we were more in the way of looking at life with all its often unwelcome duty and its arrows of pain and sorrow and all the disappointments and other ills that it is heir to as a discipline and were to think less about the unpleasantness and more about the purpose of what befalls us, we should find far less difficulty in understanding that His delay is born of love and is a token of His tender care. Sorrow is prolonged for the same reason as it was sent. It is of little use to send it for a little while. 
In the majority of cases, time is an element in its working, its right effect upon us. If the weight is lifted, the elastic substance beneath springs up again. As soon as the wind passes over the cornfield, the bowing ears raise themselves. You have to steep foul things in water for a good while before the pure liquid washes out the stains. And so time is an element in all the good that we get out of the discipline of life. If we thought of it, as I have said, more frequently as discipline and schooling and less frequently as pain and a burden, we should understand the meaning of things a great deal better than we do and should be able to face them with braver hearts and with a patient, almost joyous endurance. If we think of some of the purposes of our sorrows and burdens, we will discern still more clearly that time is needed for accomplishing them and that therefore love must delay in its coming to take them away. For example, the object of them all and the highest blessing that any of us can obtain is that our wills should be bent until they coincide with God's and that takes time. The shipwright, when he gets a bit of timber that he wants to make a knee out of, knows that to mold it into the right form is not the work of a day. A will may be broken at a blow, but it will take a while to bend it. God's love in Jesus Christ can give us nothing better than the opportunity of bowing our wills to his and saying, not mine, but yours be done. So, dear friends, if you carry a lifelong sorrow, do not think that it is a mystery why it should lie upon your shoulders when there are omnipotence and an infinite heart in the heavens. If it has the effect of bending you to his purpose, it is the truest token of his loving care that he can send in like manner. Is it not carrying a weight of unfulfilled wishes and a weariness of unalleviated sorrows if these do not teach us three things which are only one thing? Faith, endurance, prayerfulness, and so knit us by a threefold cord that cannot be broken to the very heart of God himself. Second, this delayed help always comes at the right time. Do not let us forget that heaven's clock is different from ours. In our day, there are 12 hours, and in God's, a thousand years. What seems long to us is to him a little while. Let us not imitate the short-sighted impatience of his disciples who said, What is this that he says a little while? We cannot tell what he says. The time of separation looks so long in anticipation to them, and to him it had dwindled to a moment. 
For two days, eight and 40 hours, he delayed his answer to Mary and Martha, and they thought it an eternity while the heavy hours crept by, and they only said, it's very weary. He comes not, they said. How long did it look to them when they had got Lazarus back? The longest protraction of the fulfillment of the most yearning expectations and fulfilled desire will seem but as the winking of an eyelid when we get to estimate duration by the same scale by which he estimates it, the scale of eternity. The ephemeral insect, which he estimates the ephemeral insect born in the morning and dead when the day fades has a still smaller scale than ours, but we would be crazy to run our days based on it. Do not let us commit the equal absurdity of regulating the march of his providence by the swift beating of our timepieces. God works leisurely because God has eternity to work in. The answer always comes at the right time and is punctual, though delayed. For instance, Peter is in prison. The church keeps praying for him, prays on day after day, no answer. The week of the feast comes. Prayer is made intensely and fervently and continuously, no answer. The slow hours pass away. The last day of his life, as it would appear, comes and goes. No answer. The night gathers. Prayer rises to heaven. The last hour of the last watch of the last night that he had to live has come. And as the veil of darkness is thinning and the day is beginning to break, the angel of the Lord began to shine around him. But there is no hastiness in his deliverance. All is done leisurely, as in the confidence of ample time to spare and perfect security. He is asked to arise quickly, but there is no hurry in the stages of his liberation. Gird yourself and bind your sandals. There is no fear from the angel of the army of soldiers waking or of there not being time to do all he needs to do. We can fancy the half-sleeping and wholly bewildered apostle fumbling at the sandal strings in dread of some movement rousing his guards and the calm angel face looking on. The sandals fastened, he is told to put on his garment and follow. With equal leisure and orderliness, he is conducted through the first and the second guard of sleeping soldiers and then through the prison gate. He might have been lifted at once, clean out of his dungeon and set down in the house where many were gathered praying for him. But more signal was the demonstration of power which a deliverance so gradual gave when it led him slowly past all obstacles and paralyzed their power. God is never in haste. He never comes too soon nor too late. The Lord will help them and that right 
early. Sennacherib's army is round the city. Famine is within the walls. Tomorrow will be too late. But tonight, the angel strikes and the enemies are all dead men. So God's delay makes the deliverance the more powerful and joyous when it is granted. And though hope deferred may sometimes make the heart sick, the desire when it comes is a tree of life. Third, the best help is not delayed. The principle which we have been illustrating applies only to one half, and that the less important half of our prayers and of Christ's answers. For in regard to spiritual blessings and our petitions for fuller, purer, and diviner life, there is no delay. In that region, the law is not, he abode still two days in the same place, but before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. If you have been praying for deeper knowledge of God, for lives like His, for hearts more filled with the Spirit, and have not had the answer, do not fall back upon the misapplication of such a principle as this of my text, which has nothing to do with that region. But remember that the only reason why good people do not immediately get the blessing of the Christian life for which they ask lies in themselves and not at all in God. You have not because you ask not. You ask and have not, not because of delays, but because you ask amiss or because having asked, you get up from your knees and go away, not looking to see whether the blessing is coming down or not. There is a sad amount of lying and hypocrisy in prayers for spiritual blessings. Many petitioners do not want to have them. They would not know what to do with them if they got them. They make the requests because their fathers did so before them and because these are the right kind of things to say in prayer. Such prayers get no answers. If a man prays for some spiritual enlargement and then goes out into the world and lives completely contrary to his prayers, what right has he to say that God delays his answer? No, he does not delay his answers, but we push back his answers and the gift that is given we will not take. Let us remember that the two halves of the divine dealings are not regulated by the same principle, though they be regulated by the same motive, and that the love which often delays for our good in regard to the desires that have reference to outward things is swift as the lightning to answer every petition which moves within the circle of our spiritual life. Whatever you desire, when you stand praying, believe that. Then and there you receive them, and the undelaying God will take care that you will have them.
in this sermon, he talks about God's timing is not our timing. And it's not maybe directly from the sermon, but it's just, it got in my head this thought. I don't know if it's something you go through, but I'm often impatient and I want things done pretty much right now. And I want them done as quickly as I can. I'm in traffic. I'm living life. Even improvements that I'm seeing in my children or in ministry or whatever it is, it's never happening quite as fast as I want them to. And so I get impatient or frustrated. I want to see things go better than they are. And so I try to get in there and fix it. And this sermon, Why Does Love Delay?, was just a great reminder to me that God's timing is not my timing. And so even though I may see, well, here, if we just go from point A to point B, everything will be fixed. That's not God. And his timing may be still working on a situation, but choosing to do it his way. And my impatience, wanting God's timing to match my timing, is sin. It's wrong. And I need to learn to basically stop that. I guarantee you, uh, Martha and Mary were wanting Jesus to show up quickly at least make the effort of coming to Lazarus and getting him there so that he could, if not save Lazarus, be there to comfort them, show that he made the effort. He's Jesus, right? And he didn't. And they must have been pretty frustrated on day four when he showed up. There must have been, in my mind, at least there'd be some impatience, like your timing was bad, Jesus. But it wasn't. And the real miracle came after the delay. And that same way, I think we just so often want to put God's timing into our lane, and that's just not our job. So that's something I walked away from the sermon really thinking about. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jeremiah Wheelersburg. You can listen to Jeremiah as the host of the Christian podcast, The Minister, The Ministry, and Me. It's named after his book and also known as the 3M Podcast. He often has special guests and audio blogs. Find out more at jnwheels.com. Also head on over to revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes here at Revive Thoughts. And if you could share this episode and all that we are doing at Revive Thoughts, you are making a difference. The show has been growing. We have seen more people coming in. It's because you are telling others about it. And that word of mouth is one of the biggest ways it has been uh, growing. Also, our five stars on iTunes keeps going up. We really appreciate when you do that. And if you have not given us a five stars re- five star review on iTunes, it makes a difference. Also, you... You know it. You know it deep down. You have been thinking of some way, how can I rep the greatest theologians, but also wear a comfortable t-shirt? No longer do you have to worry about this. You can go to Revive Thoughts. You can go to Teespring. Click the link in the episode description. You can wear the Revive Thoughts t-shirt. And now you will be looking styling with names like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Calvin, and many more. You have to go check them out to find out who they are. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the In-Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. On the In-Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world, ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse, how to not hate your in-laws, ways to save money for your next vacation, and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships. Join us, Daniel and Christina M. as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.